a long time. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, which is almost all of you, uh, I went to this church about 10 years ago, from about 2007 to 2012. So yeah, it's been, it's been a minute. I've never actually been in this building before. Uh, I don't know if you caught a glimpse of my family as they were kind of around, but uh, my wife Crystal and I actually met here, well, not here, but this church, uh, about yeah, 10, 11 years ago. So she can blame this church for the misfortune of having to be married to me. So you can apologize to her later when you see her. Um, but yeah, this is our first time back. So it's a little surreal. And it's been good to see some familiar faces. And of course, it's really good to see new faces here. And just the testimony of how faithful God has been to this church. Um, as, as Emily mentioned earlier, I serve at our sister church down in Bronzeville. Uh, I wasn't here for the worship night, but I heard from, from folks from our staff and others in our church that it was a really good night. So it's just nice to to worship together as family. So thanks so much for having us and for your hospitality this morning to our family. Well, this morning I've been tasked with preaching about racial reconciliation. So it's nice to come back on an easy topic because it's always, you know, it's always easy to ease in. Um, uh, but of course I'm wrapping up this series, uh, a mini-series it seems like you've been on. Um, and... What I want to make clear as we talk about racial reconciliation, as I know has been made clear in the previous two sermons, is that racial reconciliation is not an ancillary part of the gospel. This is a core piece of the gospel. I don't know how many of you have had a conversation with someone when they hear maybe a series on racial reconciliation and then say, but when are you gonna, when are you gonna talk about the gospel? When are we gonna talk about the gospel? Is anyone familiar with this kind of conversation? So I just want to, before, before I get too into this, I just want to make very clear that this is where we're coming from this morning, is that the gospel and, and reconciliation, these are, these are not something you can, you can take apart. Okay, these, are, these are really kind of talking about the same, the same thing, because we have a gospel of reconciliation. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're going to get at this this morning actually through the lens of unity, through the lens of unity. And I turn to unity because I believe this if we, if we look at unity and we see a church's discipleship rooted in biblical unity with Jesus as her cornerstone, then the mission of the church is going to flourish because there's a beautiful biblical vision for Christian unity in what is a very divided world, as we know. We don't need to be reminded of that this morning, do we? And in a divided world, when we can see a real expression of Christian unity, it will be so compelling that people will not be able to turn away. Do you believe that this morning? If there's a real picture of Christian unity in this divided world, it would be so incredibly compelling that the world will not be able to turn away. So let's turn to our passage this morning. And like I said, it's been a while since I've been here. At our church, we stand for the reading of God's word. So if you can indulge me, and if you're able, would you please stand with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and I'll be reading out of the uh, NIV, the New International Version, this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners of the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside, sorry, I lost my spot here. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of God. You may have your seats. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you this morning um, in a lot of different headspaces. Some of us come in maybe not wanting to be here, maybe not wanting to be in mixed company because we weren't sure if we were ready to show ourselves, show our faces in the, in, in the wake of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. God, I pray for those of us who feel that way right now that they would know that you see them. And that there'd be comfort, but that there would also be no rush to, to get to better, to get to okay. God, I pray that this would be a space where there's permission through the Holy Spirit to feel how we feel, the anger, the frustration, the hopelessness. But God, I also pray that you would Help us to be community, help us to be family to each other, to see that in each other, to not put up pretenses or a face that would make someone feel like they need to fake how they're feeling this morning. But God, also we, we come fully raw before your word this morning, God, because we can admit that we don't know. We don't, we don't know how to fix things. It's not within our capabilities or our capacity to fix things. And so we just surrender to you this morning, God. So I pray that the word that would come forth would not be my words. It would not be, it would not be words that are meant to, to, to be a balm. But this would just simply be your truth, God, for your people this morning. So God, speak through me into the hearts of your people and translate that through the Holy Spirit in the way that your people need to hear it. The way that they need to feel you and see you and experience you this morning. And may it be done in community as you have intended for your church. I pray all this really big stuff, things that we cannot do, we commit it to you who, who is the only one capable of doing this. We submit it to you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty, powerful, intimate, and just name we pray. Amen. All right. Well. So, uh, let's start with a story here. It's not one that's familiar to us, I don't think. This is a story that dates us back all the way to 27 AD. Okay, and this was in the, near, the city of Rome. There was an entrepreneur by the name of Attilius who wanted to build an amphitheater that would host gladiator fights. Can't really imagine that. Imagine a football field. That's, I think, a very similar, sadly, corollary in our culture. Despite being very wealthy, this man Attilius, he wanted to cut corners in construction. Are we familiar with this happening in our society today? (laughs) Cutting corners in construction. He urged the builders to use cheap materials and had an unstable foundation laid for this amphitheater. So as you can probably imagine, when 50,000 people flocked to this amphitheater for the first time to take in some gladiator fights, about 20,000 of them fell to their deaths when the foundation gave way and the seating collapsed. And of course, many more were injured. Why? Because building on a weak foundation can have devastating consequences. Devastating consequences. This morning from our passage, I just want to pick one metaphor that Paul uses. He talks about the unity of God's people as a building, as a holy temple, right? This building that Paul says has the apostles and the prophets as the foundation with Jesus as the foundation stone or as the corner stone. The cornerstone is the first stone that's laid when a building is, 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 is being erected. I'm not an architect. I don't build things. I apologize if I mince terms here, but I think it's plain to see when a foundation is weak, like in the amphitheater example I gave you, 
we can see that a structure is really only as strong as its foundation. It can be beautiful, but if what's underneath it is weak, the whole thing is in jeopardy. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand that our unity is built on Jesus, who is our cornerstone. So fast forwarding now a couple thousand years to today, we can see that this message still rings very true. Jesus built our unity on, uh, God built our unity on Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We need to understand that our unity is nurtured and sustained by Jesus, our cornerstone. Again, we need to understand this morning that our unity is nurtured and sustained by Jesus, who is our cornerstone. I am convinced that resting on Jesus as the cornerstone of our unity will give us clarity on how to pursue racial reconciliation in a sustainable way. This morning, we're going to see clearly and understand how Jesus is the cornerstone of our unity in three specific ways. First, Jesus built our unity. Jesus sustains our unity. And third, Jesus sets the direction for our unity. Jesus built our unity. Jesus sustains our unity. And Jesus sets the direction for our unity. So let's first establish that Jesus built our unity. So cornerstones, again, they're the first stone that's laid when, when a building or foundation is being set. Um, and Jesus, of course, is the first stone laid for the foundation of the church, right? Verses 19 and 20 read, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So just two things I want to point out here really quickly. Number one is that the purpose of a cornerstone is to hold two walls together. It's pretty simple. It sort of serves as a joint, right? Basically just keeping the walls from falling down, okay? Uh, unlike the unsteady amphitheater that collapsed due to its poor foundation, of course, the church is built on Jesus. He's the rock, right? He's a firm foundation. He's our cornerstone. Second thing to notice this passage makes clear that it's God who does the work. It's God who's doing the work. He's the architect of this holy temple, of this church. Now we, we, we are sort of bricks in the wall, right? Anyone get that reference? Am I dating myself here? All right. But we had no role in laying the foundation of this temple. Thank you, Daniel. It is purely by grace that God chose to include us in his holy structure. Now that said, according to our passage, the apostles and prophets are also part of the church's foundation. So, so the faithfulness of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, the New Testament, right, that many of the apostles and prophets penned are the foundation of our unity. Remember in, um, of course you're going to remember Matthew chapter 16, right? Just, you just know it. When Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why does Jesus say this to Peter? Is Peter a firm foundation by himself? No, he's not. It's because Jesus made him the rock, right, through the Holy Spirit. I mean, we see plenty of evidence in Scripture of, 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 of Peter's shortcomings, don't we? Uh, but he's also bold in his faith. Think about this. He's the, literally the only person, other person in human history to walk on water. Now, he took a few steps and fell, but... Have you walked on water? I don't think so, right? So he, he was bold in his faith. But he also yelled at Jesus at times, right? He also, you know, the get behind me, Satan. It's not a thing you want said to you, I don't think. But if we, if we look at Pentecost, right, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came and inhabited the apostles. And we saw a very different Peter that morning, didn't we? He preached the sermon of his life that day. It's because the Spirit was animating and empowering his people. And that's what built this foundation for our unity. So today, today, we are not responsible for building, we're not responsible for building this foundation. But we are responsible for honoring and nurturing the unity that Jesus laid through the apostles and through the prophets. In verses 13 to 15, Paul says Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and made the two groups one, the Jews and the Gentiles. In Jesus, our cornerstone, the Jews and the Gentiles, are united. Okay, so I, I have two little kids, and they have lots of toys, as you can imagine. And one of these toys is four different dinosaur magnet toys. Okay, stay with me. So they're, they're, they're different colors. So it's like a head, a head, a torso, and then a magnet that sort of binds these. 
Okay, there's four of these. And what I've discovered in my free time is that two of these magnets are North Pole magnets and two of these magnets are, are South Pole magnets. Okay, so, so quick science lesson here. What happens if you try to, to join like two North Pole or two South Pole magnets together? What happens? They repel, that's right. Oh, look at that. Your science teachers would be very proud of you this morning. Yeah, they repel. It's, like imp- it's impossible. I, I tried. It's impossible to get these to, to go together. Okay, and that's what the Jews and the Gentiles were. Okay? They, in every conceivable way, were opposites. In food, in culture, in, in customs, everything. They just did not mix. They did not mix. It's the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that Jesus can join two North Pole magnets together and hold them together in his might. Hold them together in his love as the cornerstone of this new community. So therefore, our unity is not fragile. Amen? It's not fragile. It is held together by Jesus, a force strong enough to hold two opposing poles together. And because our unity is strong and cannot be broken by human hands, we can boldly confront the attacks that come on our unity. Listen, I know your church has been going through some transitions. I know that. It's been confusing. It's been painful. Perhaps you've seen friends leave. People you've known for a long time. Maybe you're not sure if you're supposed to stay. It's in times like this, when our footing feels very, very uncertain, we start questioning other people's commitment levels, their agendas, their intentions. But let me be perfectly clear as we see in this passage this morning, this morning that Jesus Christ is strong enough to hold two opposing poles together. Those in Jesus are united. And what's left for us to do is difficult work. What's left for us to do is in faith work out what unity really looks like. In this local and specific expression. What does unity really look like? But we can work this out without the fear of breaking unity because we can't break it. It's not in our power to break what Jesus has built. Amen. Thank you, Carlton. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with having to wrestle with some really, really difficult things. Now, racial reconciliation, racial justice, these are not new things to this church. I know that because like I said, I, I was here a while ago. And it was a common conversation even before I got here. But it doesn't make it any easier to talk about or live out, does it? Why? Because history keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? As Pastor Tim had to remind us this morning. It doesn't get any easier because while Kyle Rittenhouse might be acquitted, we're all nervously awaiting the outcome of the men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery, aren't we? And if we're being honest, what do we really expect? It's because we breathe this cultural and national air of segregation and separation. Everywhere we look, everywhere we read, everything we see tells us that our country is red and blue and it's getting darker, isn't it? Or so we're told that these, these poles are pulling apart. But what I see in Scripture this morning, sisters and brothers, is that this cannot be so in God's family. And it is not so in God's family because Jesus holds all opposing and repelling forces through his blood. And I don't say this to say everything's kumbaya and we're perfect. No. It's to say that we have power that we have access to, folks. Because we have power and access to the Holy Spirit of the living God, we can listen to each other without the need to prove that, hey, I'm right here, right? Our posture changes, doesn't it? Because we know that we were saved and we were still sinners, we can be humble because we know we don't have all the answers. We don't know. None of us is perfect. None of us is all the wisdom, all the knowledge. At least I don't. As verse 12 reminds us, look, unless you're Jewish, which I don't, I'm assuming most of you are not, we were separate from Christ. We were excluded from citizenship in Israel. And we were foreigners of the covenants of the promise. 
This is who we were. This is part of our history. God's grace does not allow us to think that we're right about everything, does it? God's people are humble and know that only God knows everything. And therefore, we listen humbly to each other. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. doesn't mean we agree with everything, right? It doesn't mean we just buy it. No, no, no. But we do have to love each other, and we do that by listening well. And we listen just because you listen to someone doesn't mean you tacitly agree with them, amen? I feel like there's like this, this understanding in our culture. It's like if you don't say something in that moment, if you like treat someone like a human being, somehow it's like you're just with them. That, that's not entirely true, right? We can listen to people and love them and not agree with them. That is possible in the church, right? Yeah. Here's the other thing we need to do. We need to believe the stories and experiences of those who suffered individual and systemic racism, Don't make them doubt. Don't make us doubt the experiences that we've had. Don't make us think like, man, did I imagine that microaggression? Did I imagine that slight? Did I imagine that I wasn't promoted because of my race? Because of the way that I look? Believe each other because you don't know everything. And in this Jesus-built unity, we believe each other. Amen? Jesus lived, died, resurrected to build and secure the unity of his church. So be humble, listen well, and believe each other's experiences. So the first way that Jesus is the cornerstone of our unity is that Jesus built our unity. Second way that Jesus is the cornerstone of our unity is that Christ sustains our unity. He sustains our unity. Take us back to ancient times. I like ancient times, apparently. When structures were being built and the foundation was being laid with the cornerstone as that first stone, these things are called foundation deposits. They're basically like hollowed out stones. They sort of fill them with these like symbolic items, things like, um, that, that were sort of meant to, to be like good luck essentially for that structure, right? So they're building things like temples, forts, important buildings. They would have these deposits not only kind of in the foundation, but also kind of peppered throughout the important parts of the building. The, the, the symbolism here is that um, basically, like, there's, there's always going to be components of that original building that's going to stay with the life of the building, but also it's meant to sort of protect the building, okay? So in these cultures that were mostly, you know, not the God we worship now, there were animals and even humans often that were sacrificed uh, and buried in the foundations, essentially as offerings to, to their gods, right, to protect their building from the elements, from enemies, that type of thing. The very DNA of the building then has remnants of the foundation in it, Right? What, what, about our, what about our building? Unlike in these false religions where, where they were sacrificing animals to their gods, what, what did Jesus do? He sacrificed himself, right? Jesus sacrificed himself for the building of this foundation. God didn't stop at those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Those, those animal sacrifices at the tabernacle and then later at the temple, these all pointed to a much greater and final sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, on the cross. And not only did he sacrifice himself for us, but he's also in the very DNA of the church. See, Jesus didn't just leave the church to fend for herself. Every single part of God's holy temple that is us, that is the church, has Jesus' remnants in it. He's the foundation. He holds up every wall and stone and mortar and and whatever else goes into building a temple. The indwelling Holy Spirit enables every believer to live united because the Holy Spirit has anchored the church to the cornerstone. And because Jesus' DNA is in every believer, we can't forget who we are. We can't forget who we are. Just like we pass our personalities, our values, our tendencies onto our children and onto our children's children, Jesus has marked all of us as his own. So note this carefully. Look, we've been adopted into God's family, right? We've been adopted into God's family. So when we raise and, and love our children, whether they're biological or whether they're adopted, we imprint on them our values, our desires, our dreams, our hopes. Yes, we also imprint our baggage on them, but that's a sermon for another preacher for another day. We try not to do that, but we do. But, we, but mainly we're trying to imprint our values, the good stuff, Right? In the same way, Jesus has left an imprint on every believer, on every person who belongs to him and follows him. 
So, so we don't build our unity, right? We talked about this. We don't build our unity. We don't have to create or manufacture what Jesus already did. But in order to sustain and cultivate this built unity that Jesus has already made and died for, God has imprinted us with the Holy Spirit to continue to sustain and build it. So, so what do we do? We, we prune and, and we, we, we nurture, right? We, we, we help it grow like a garden. You don't make vegetables grow out of the ground, right? But you can, you can help that process. You, you prune it. You take care of it. I cannot stress enough how important it is for us to understand that we are not building unity. Because I think a lot of times our assumptions tell us that we think we need to build something. But we don't. It's already built. We have to remember that not only do we not build our unity, but we don't actually build our community either. This is something our church has been wrestling with lately. Our, our community already exists. It already exists. By virtue of God planting this church in the presence of Holy Spirit-inhabited people, such as yourselves, God's family's been established in new community. Whether you're even meeting in a movie theater 20 years ago, however long it's been, whether you're meeting in a different church, whether you're meeting in this building, whether you're meeting in a gym like we do, our unity is secure. Our community is secure. So what does this mean practically? It means you and I, we may not know each other that well. I may not know you at all. But we are family. Okay, this is just like um, when I was eight or nine. Uh, I'm, I'm Korean. And so with my family, I went back to South Korea. met a whole bunch of relatives I've never met before. And frankly, I haven't seen almost any of them since then. But they're family, right? I can't deny that they're family. Just because I don't see them, just because I don't talk to them on a regular basis, doesn't mean that we're not family. And so it is with, with the Christian family. You know, we don't know everyone intimately well, but we are family. And this is the work of Jesus. It'd be silly for me to suggest that, ah, I'm not, I'm not associated with them. No, we, can't, we don't get to do that. So what this means is we belong to each other, right? We nurture, we cultivate this unity together. Now, what this can practically look like is that we call out the forces that try to tear us apart. Because our unity is strong in Jesus and cannot be broken, we can bravely call out white supremacy. We call out individualism. We call out consumerism for how they've shaped and deformed our past and our present. And in fact, I would say they've deformed us so comprehensively that we subconsciously operate in the church as the world does. Because our unity is strong in Jesus, and can, I'm going to repeat myself, because, because I need a stronger response. I appreciate it, Carlton, but I need a stronger response because our unity is strong in Jesus and cannot be broken. We bravely call out white supremacy, amen? We call out individualism. We call out consumerism for the ways that they've tried to deform us so comprehensively that we act like the world does. Church, we have firm footing on our foundation to step boldly into racial reconciliation work and to honestly face the ugliness of our personal and our family histories, of our country's history, of our city's history. We do the work to repent, to repair, to restore in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing this work, we handle each other's stories, experiences, emotions with great care and love. But we also elevate the experiences of those who've been oppressed. Those of us who are used to having power and authority because of our gender, because of our race, we're going to give up that power, right? We're going to give up that power, that authority, and we're going to give it to those who are disenfranchised and silenced. Now I want to speak directly to those of us who have that power and influence by virtue of our race and our gender. So I'm talking to myself here as a male. My message is this, we can't stand on the sidelines. We cannot stand on the sidelines. There's no way to peripherally struggle for reconciliation. We can't say that we care about racial reconciliation or racial justice, but then have our lifestyles, the people we do life with, the neighborhoods we choose to live in and how we spend our money, we can't have these things telling a different story, right? I'm not expecting a loud amen to that, but something would be nice. Racial reconciliation work is comprehensive. We are united in God's kingdom. There's no room for hedging in this family. We cannot peripherally or secondarily be involved in racial reconciliation work. 
You know, one of the, one of the less discussed byproducts of, of white supremacy is that white people are dehumanized too. When they subscribe to the lies of white supremacy, you become lesser. You become less than God's image and intention for you and how you were intended to be. When we with privilege don't reckon with how white supremacy has deformed us, it makes it harder for us to stand up against the ways that white supremacy has more obviously dehumanized people of color and women. I don't say this to make you feel guilty, or maybe just a a tiny bit, but generally not to make you feel guilty. I say this to remind you that you have access to to, to the God of the universe. And the power of the Holy Spirit to, to flip this world upside down. Only because our unity is secure can we bravely deconstruct the ways we've been deeply deformed by our culture when it comes to race. Here's an example from my uh, Asian American brothers and sisters. We need to tear down the idols, some of us, tear down the idols of comfort and security that rule a lot of us. But we can still do this without, we can do this, I would say, while still honoring the blood, sweat, and tears of our immigrant parents and grandparents. These things are not incompatible. But folks, we need to start reckoning with the idols that we've built up in this country for ourselves, thinking comfort and security are our paths forward. Our unity in Jesus, our cornerstone, gives us all the security that we need to lament the ways that we've been dehumanized excuse me, dehumanized by white supremacy and the ways that we've been willingly complicit with it too. And then we can stand in solidarity. Then we can stand in solidarity with other oppressed people. Again, this is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' DNA is in his holy temple. That's us. That's us. We are his holy temple. Jesus' DNA is in us. Thank God that Jesus is the cornerstone of our unity and sustains our unity. The third and final way that Jesus is the cornerstone of our unity is that Christ sets the direction for our unity. So in addition to to holding two walls together to keep them from falling down, the the cornerstone's purpose is to orient the building in the desired direction. So, you know, again, I'm not great with this, but you know, you notice in certain buildings like an actual cornerstone, maybe this church has one, it's kind of an old building, right? It's got like the year it was built or whatever. It was set there on purpose to sort of set the direction that the building's going to face. Now, what is God's desired direction for for a new community? I don't don't know. Your mission statement probably feeds into that, right? I don't know, but, but what I do know is this. Part of it is to demonstrate unity to a fractured and broken city, to a fractured and broken neighborhood. We're sitting here for a reason. You are at this intersection, this sort of T intersection, for a reason. God has placed you here for a reason. Discerning God's direction for your church, particularly in a tumultuous time, this is going to require some deep and really uncomfortable reflection, lament, repentance, and confession. The beautiful thing is, from what I've heard, you're in the middle of this now, and this is beautiful work that you're doing. You're willing to take that long, hard look in the mirror. Now, I'm not, I'm not that old, but I'm, I just turned 38, and uh, these days I try not to look in the mirror for, for too long. Um, you know, like, there's, this is probably TMI, but like every, every other once in a while I'm like, notice like a hair growing out of a part of my face that's not supposed to have hair, right? It's like, it's like the hair in my head is just migrating to like random places in my body. This is, not a, this is not a pretty picture, okay? And likewise, when a church looks in the mirror, it's going to see some ugliness, some random hairs, all right? And that's all right. But in order to be a caring community that brings Christ's hope and empowerment to the city, you first need to be hopeful people who are empowered by the, by the Spirit. Your ministry outside of these walls will only be as strong, it will only be strong if you stand on Jesus as your cornerstone. And if you're committed to the direction that Jesus has set for your unity. Now, it's Jesus' direction, right? It's not your direction. It's not the cultural winds direction. It's not the popular direction that you're called to. It's not, it's not the direction that the cool people with the right clothes and the right jobs and the right glasses have on, right? No, it's not that at all. It's, it's the difficult direction. 
that Jesus has called you to. Because God's direction is not usually in a comfortable or in an obvious direction, now is it? It almost never is, unfortunately. Pursuing racial reconciliation in a divided country is not a comfortable direction for a church. Seeking reconciliation across racial, political, class, age, all the lines, is only possible when Jesus Christ has set that direction. Not only that, the trajectory that Jesus has set you on very much puts you at odds with your personal, your personal tendencies toward comfort. I love comfort, right? It doesn't usually go in that direction. And it also puts us at odds with our societal tendencies toward separation and segregation. So there's a lot that it's putting us up against. And yet this is undeniably, I would say, the direction that Jesus, who is our cornerstone, has set for your church body, for all church bodies, He set an impossible direction for us because we need to know that it is only by God's grace and strength that our unity is possible. Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone in three different gospel accounts. He does this by applying Psalm 118 to himself. He says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You know, in Jesus' life, Think about all the powers that be that, that existed, right? There was the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, there was King Herod, there was the Roman government. All of them not only missed the point who Jesus was and dismissed him, some of them murdered him, right? They actively murdered him. Following Jesus in the direction he's charted for us is going to feel like a lonely road a lot of the time. And enemies will seek to thwart us. They will seek to thwart us. The world rejected Jesus, so it will reject us. It's just part of the deal. We cannot expect the world's acceptance when following Jesus' direction. In fact, when you start feeling opposition, sometimes it's a good sign that you're on the right path. But here's the thing, right? None of us can do this alone. We have to do this together. We have to do this together. There's no one person among us who has the courage, the wisdom, the charisma, the, the influence, the force of will to align a church with Jesus' direction. The whole body, or in this case, every part of God's holy temple needs to be involved. Because rejection is not easy. It's terrible. It sucks. You ever been rejected? It's the worst. You, don't want to, you can't do that alone. We need each other. We need each other. Because left to fend for ourselves, we're all going to quit one at a time, aren't we? Right? It's just natural. We're going to quit. And this is why the call in the church is to all of us. It's not just to one of us, not just to the, the pastors. It's to all of us. There's no me without you. Your discipleship is intricate to my discipleship, believe it or not. We're missing a piece of God's beautiful picture when we view discipleship individually. We miss the point. And when our solutions are purely individualistic with our discipleship, and I start thinking, man, I just need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to just resist this temptation more. I mean, yes, but also, no. There is so much more than that. We need the holy temple to be a cohesive holy temple. We need each other. Because reckoning with our personal and our national histories is really, really hard. And we need each other's strength and prayers and resources and encouragement and shoulder to cry on, and book recommendations if you're like me. always helps. We need each other's stories and experiences to combat the lies that we tell ourselves, that we've been told about ourselves, about our country, about our city. We need each other so that no one has to wrestle with their Korean or Chinese or Indian identity alone. So no one has to protest and advocate for racial justice alone. So that the voiceless are no longer isolated, but they're elevated. And given priority and platforms and authority to speak and to lead. Do you all see the uh, Block Club Chicago article about uh, the artist Tanika Johnson? I hope I'm saying her name right. All right, Kimmy, you saw that. It's it's called Iniquity uh, for for Sale. Um, And it's a live installation she's doing in, in the Inglewood neighborhood in the south side. As someone who grew up, she grew up in Inglewood, and she'd recently learned about uh, these things called land sale contracts. Anyone familiar with this? Okay, so these were contracts that were used in the 50s and 60s primarily. 
Um, and they were used to plunder African-American people in this city, particularly on the west and south sides of, of our city. Now, because black people were denied mortgage, uh, traditional mortgages, right, by, by the banks and often by federal law, some enterprising folks decided to use these land sale contracts uh, to, to make a little money, okay? These are contracts in which a buyer finances a property, okay, so you buy it and then you, you, you basically sell it to someone and say, you're going to make installate installment payments to me until you pay off and then I'm going to give you the title when, you, when you've purchased the house from me. Sounds fair, right? Sounds like a reasonable setup. Can imagine how this goes. Of course, as Johnson learned, real estate speculators who were white, because who else could buy homes at the time? These white uh, real estate speculators, he bought homes and they sold them to black families at massive markups. Massive, massive markups. Effectively, the black tenants would never be able to pay the loan off, right? They're just essentially paying terrible rent never being able to buy the home, all with this thing dangling in front of them that you'll own this home one day. And when they could no longer afford it, they were booted. And then these speculators would just find their next mark. This is predatory behavior, yeah? The voiceless families, though, have been given some voice through Johnson's live art installation. Here's what she did. She placed these yellow, like, you can't miss yellow signs, in front of these houses includes the dates, and includes the names of the people who were scammed. And it says, justice was never served for these families. Now those families that had to suffer in complete silence, probably not being believed, probably thinking, is it my fault that this happened to me? Says, Did I do something wrong? Now they don't have to suffer in silence anymore. Because our unity is secure in Jesus, we can boldly follow the Jesus-set direction for our unity like Tanika Johnson did. We can unapologetically call out racism in all of its forms, in every forum of this world. And we do our parts to repair the damage that racism has wrought. And we can do this privately. But we do it publicly too. We do it quietly and we do it loudly. Right? We do it in all ways. Because the third way that Jesus is the cornerstone for our unity is that Jesus Christ sets the direction for our unity. Uh, you know, it, it's no secret that the pandemic has thrown all sorts of things into upheaval. Church life, certainly no exception to that. But I would say in this upheaval has come time to reflect, to reevaluate, to recognize opportunities for deeper roots to take hold in the church. I'm excited for new community. I'm excited for new community because the leadership is convicted and resolved to follow Jesus' direction for the unity of this body, particularly willing to wade into deeper and more troubled waters of racial reconciliation work. Don't let this holy moment pass you by, church. Don't let it pass you by. I've got good news because there's always good news. The good news is that the path forward is really nothing new. It's standing on Jesus, our cornerstone. The cornerstone of our unity. So in those moments of discomfort, doubt, frustration, anger, confusion, I encourage you to consider that our discipleship is collective. It's not individual. It's collective. We belong to the holy temple and so we are beholden to each other. Therefore, we will listen patiently and humbly to each other and believe each other's stories and experiences. Amen? Particularly to the stories and experiences of our black and brown brothers and sisters. As a church and as individuals, we will look in the mirror and reckon with how we've been willfully, passively complicit with white supremacy. And then we'll repent. And we'll repent some more. And we'll repent again. And we'll do the work to repair and to reconcile. And then we'll turn outward and we'll boldly follow Jesus in the direction that he set for our unity. And we can only do this because our unity is built on the rock, the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Jesus built our unity, church. Jesus sustains our unity. And Jesus sets the direction for our unity as we pursue racial reconciliation as a united body in the power the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. 
Holy Spirit of the living God, we, we come humbly because many of us are at a loss. Many of us don't know what the next right step to take is, whether that's for our church, whether that's just in our personal lives, whether that's in reckoning and, and, and trying to figure out how do, I, how do I advocate for racial justice? What is my role? What is my voice? For those of us who are having a really hard time with that, God, meet us right now. And remind us, God, that we are secure in you. We are secure in you. We are anchored on you. And so as we place our faith in you to give us the words, to give us the, uh, the, the just, just light the next step for us. We don't need to know the whole thing. We don't need to know the whole path. By faith, God, I ask that you just light us one step at a time. And as we take these steps, we're going to find that our grounding is secure because our grounding is on the rock, on this firm foundation that you've built underneath your church. And so, God, I pray for new community right now. I pray for boldness. I pray for a willingness to look hard in that mirror as a church and as individuals, but to not be overwhelmed by that, not to be... Uh, uh, discouraged and just defeated but no to see that even in the midst of that even in the the depths of that valley God you are good and you love us and you've pulled us out of that valley already that's where you saved us from and so God that same gospel that saved us when we were yet still sinners is the same gospel power that we have access to now to 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 live this life united to to be a beacon to a city and to a country that badly needs to see the picture of biblical unity in your church. So God, I pray that that's what new community would be, continue to be, because I know you're doing this work. So God, I pray for faithfulness in the work of, of, of digging into the identity of this church and what you've called this body to. And God, I pray for courage and strength and patience listening ears, but also uh, a willingness to rebuke each other and to correct each other when needed, God. Yeah. So God, I thank you for this body. I thank you for the ways you sustained new community all these years through ups and downs. It is secure in you. It is secure in you, God. I thank you. And God, as we, as we turn to the communion table this morning, I thank you for this reminder that we all come to the table as equals. We come to the table humbly, and we come to the table acknowledging that it is your broken body and your shed blood that secures us, that makes any of this possible for us. And so, God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to come to this table this morning. And as we partake of the elements, Lord God, may we physically and tangibly reminded of who you are, of your goodness for us, and that we are bound together at this table as a family under Christ. So thank you, Lord. We love you. We, we, we depend on you. We trust you to heal us, to repair us, to point out uh, the things that we need to, to lay out before you, the things we need to confess to each other, perhaps before coming to this table. God, we just come before you holy ourselves, but, but uh, fully uh, surrender to you, God. Do your will in new community. It's in Jesus' powerful and uniting name we pray. Amen. So it is now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they may lead a holy life. All who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them. All who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life. Following the commandments of God and walking from now on in his holy ways are invited to draw near with faith and to receive this holy sacrament. Forgot to mention, if you're joining us virtually, go ahead and gather your elements. 
Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify that you are not righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence. Pray for the Spirit. I'm going to pray a prayer of confession over us, and if you know it, feel free to join me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry. We humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I'm just going to give you a moment to, um, a moment of silent prayer, if anything you want to confess to God right now. I'd memorized this. Turns out I can't break bread with one hand. <laughs> it's not the bread that we break, our participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. It's not the cup that we bless, participation in the blood of Christ. The gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and thanksgiving. The table is open. Come on up to the front in a moment, I guess. Yeah. The table is open. <laughs> 